Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, um, thanks so much for calling in from Montana, man. Yeah, not a problem. It's great to be able to have a conversation with you virtually. Yeah. So um, when I travel around the country, I get to meet all kinds of interesting people who are doing amazing stuff in food and agriculture. And when we were interacting out in Montana, I thought, oh, boy, we got to have you on this show. So here you are. And why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, my name is Barnett Sporkin Morrison. Yeah, usually it's it's funny when people ask me to introduce myself. I usually lead with what my son would say about me. Oh, good. And my, and my son, if he was here right now, would take off my hat and point out the fact that his dad was balding. Right. So it's you know very humanistic and humbling experience to have a four and a half year old and two and a half year old home, but. Um, yeah, they will keep that, you humble. Yep, they they will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am I do have two little kids, and I'm married to a wonderful woman who's a veterinarian named Dr. Kristen Boroff, and we live in a small town called Shoto, Montana, which is just about an hour northwest of Great Falls, Montana, where I work out of. I work for a local economic development authority called the Great Falls Development Authority, mm-hmm. which has one of Montana's four food and egg development centers or FADCs that are funded by the state of Montana through a, a grant program that goes on every couple of years. So, and my, yeah. Yeah. So before you even go on, on further, I got to say that part of there's so many levels to what is interesting to me about you. And so. Uh, one of the things that was so unique about Montana and uh, is these four ag and development centers because I've never, you know, traveling around the country, I've never really run into an institution like that anywhere, and I I am envious. So, um, and so as you're talking, you get to help us uh, understand what they do. Yeah. So the the food and egg development center program is a little bit around ten years old here in the state of Montana, and it was originally supported by some USDA grants, and then the state took it over. And really, when you look at it, like from a 50,000-foot perspective, it's part of Montana's historic drive or desire to build further linkage effects on our tremendous agricultural production in the state. Mm-hmm. So when we look in, as you and I have talked about, when we look at you know the Rocky Mountain region where we are, the Northern Plains, and then you compare it up to Canada, to, to the Prairie Provinces, or you go into you know your neck of the woods in the Great Lakes or the Midwest, um, we've lagged behind in Montana of actually putting those linkage effects on top of our agricultural production. And as an agriculture economist, that's what, as a public good, is in part because it's providing, you know, safe, quality, and efficient food supply, but also because we can build, you know, an economy based on top of it. And mm-hmm. Montana's been stuck in this situation that whether it's high-quality wheat, whether it's the barley we produce, whether it's the cattle we produce, we're largely an export-oriented state, and exporting both to foreign countries, such as Japan with our wheat, um, but also to other states for further refinement of our agricultural production. So the FADC, or these food and egg development centers, were originally designed to try to make a, 
you know, try to find a way to build that economy within Montana on the base of our agricultural production. Right. And and for uh, the benefit of our listeners who, who may or may not know Montana well, um, I found it amazing when I came to visit that you have a million people, but you have 1.4 million cattle. And the the crazy part to me was when I would talk to people about economic development, people wanted economic development, but then they would say in the next sentence, they would say, but we don't want any more people moving here. And I, I was always like, okay, so how do you have economic development without having people? I mean, you really don't have very many people in the whole state. No, that's true. And I should say when we look at our full cattle numbers, if we look at cow, you know, actual mother cows, it's around uh-huh. that number you said, and then pushes above 2 million when we add cow calves and feeding oh. in there as well. But. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So twice as many cattle. And that's not wildlife, right? So you've got no, that exactly. too, that, right? That doesn't, doesn't include the deer, the elk, the antelope, the, the grizzly bears, the wolves, or any of that. So, oh, wow. No, I, I agree. You know, as mentioned, I, you know, I'm, I live in Montana. I've been here for over five years. My family has deep roots in the state, but I actually was born and raised down in Wyoming. And some of those conversations you would have, you know, anybody I'd say in the Rocky Mountain West, there, usually there's a second, you know, phrasing thing. <laughs> we want all this, but we don't want more people. But, right. You know, as a, an economist and a sociologist um, and somebody involved in economic development, we're actually, especially our region, I would say, of the state is very open to having new people come here, mm-hmm. you know, new flows of capital, new business deals, because you can't say, oh, we want to grow, we want to increase economic prosperity, but we don't want anybody else to come here. Right, right. Um, it's sort of the two don't go together real well. And Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and it just, and, and what is interesting to me then, too, about these centers is that because you don't have a lot of people, like here in Wisconsin, we can go, okay, well, you know, Milwaukee, Madison, we got two million people. We can develop some local brands and, and you know, from agriculture and sell them to consumers who are here geographically, conveniently here. And you can't do that, Montana. No, no, we can't. Um, you know, but one of the benefits, as you, as you fully know, is that our location in Montana, it's a perfect geography to move products that we have that have high, you know, credence attributes of family farm production, family ranching, um, sustainable production of moving those products that can be processed here or find a co-packer and then marketing that on the West Coast where we do find a market for that. Right. Whether that's the P&W or California. Right, right. And and I got to say, the food was amazing in, in Montana. I mean, you do, you are producing some really spectacular food in Montana. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's interesting when you look at a just a pure commodity basis. We mm-hmm. actually are the envy of a lot of places in our, our quality of our wheat. Mm-hmm. And then we would look at cattle production or even some specialty sheep and wool production. And uh, we have a portion of the state that um, produces cherries, and there's other portions that produce, you know, a high amount of lentils and chickpeas or gabonzo beans. And so we have a we have an interesting diversity of cropping um, as well as livestock production in the state, and we have some interesting things going on in the state for refinement of that product. Right, right, right. So I was in, um, so when we met in Livingston, I was at, staying in a hotel and having breakfast and and um, started talking to some folks who were there, and um, they, it was three farmers who were very excited to tell me that they just 
I think I, it's a cooperative. It wasn't quite clear, but they, he said, I'm an owner in a processing facility for sugar, sugar beets. And yep. that, and we supply, you know, some huge amount of sugar that is going into all kinds of products. Was that a cooperative? Yeah, it's probably Western Sugar, which is a co-op that has operations in Billings and then down in the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, and then you actually down into southeastern Wyoming, um, east or western Nebraska, Colorado region. Wow. It's one of the larger sugar cooperatives, I think, still in the country. Wow. Yeah. That was my impression. And he was so, he was very proud of the fact that he was an owner in that business, you know, and I, I love hearing that talking to farmers. Yeah. No, it's, I grew up down in an area of Wyoming that was heavy in sugar beet production. And I think that um, sugar beet farmers are definitely a a special case, and I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do they do value. You know, they do have benefit from a business that you know they're cooperative owners, and a lot of them, as well as they have a. You know, we have a U.S. sugar system that they've benefited through for sure. over years. Right, right, that's right. So, are there a lot of cooperatives in Montana? I mean, there. It depends upon your definition of cooperative, right? Uh-huh. As you know, yep. you know, some people talk as you know use the term sometimes hippie cooperative. Yeah, then, right. You know, you have the big behemoths, and when we look at you know agricultural crop input um, provision as well as some grain marketing and other things, you know, CHS is very large in the state. Mm-hmm. We then have some somewhat Lando Lakes United Suppliers aligned cooperatives in the state as well, and I would say that that's really the largest ones. Mm-hmm. And then we look at, of course. Um, like my telephone service within um, the community I live in is provided by Three Rivers Telecommunications, which is a cooperative. And then you mm-hmm. go a little bit north, and there's Sun River Electric Company and some natural gas um, cooperatives. So heavy on the utility cooperatives as well as sure. some of these larger production, agriculture production cooperatives. Yeah. And, there, and there is pushes to always do a bit more cooperatives um, within the state. But I think the the western states, tend to be a little bit more independent, Mm -hmm. so a cooperative sometimes can be a difficult sell historically. Right, right, exactly. I was wondering about that, sort of the, you know, the the cowboy mentality meets trying to work together in a co-op, but it because of as rural as you are, the the utilities make total sense. Nobody else would go there, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in your role, um, what are you focused on? So we take a three prong approach with the economic development group that I work with. And I should mention the Great Falls Development Authority is very much a public private partnership. Right. So about 80% of our funding actually is with private companies and individuals that are in this 13 county trade area of Great Falls, Montana. Mm -hmm. So our trade area goes from a little bit south of Great Falls all the way up to the Canadian border and kind of fans out and covers this area that we call the Golden Triangle and a portion of the High Line and then along the Rocky Mountains, so we call the Rocky Mountain Front. Mm. And so because we are highly responded, about 80% of our funding to the private sector, mm-hmm. um, results really matter. Right. And that result is enhancing economic opportunity within the area. So, you know, if there's a, a factory that goes in 120 miles away, but we know that all those factory workers are going to come and buy cars in Great Falls, Montana, then that's what our investors want us to do. Right. Um, they're very much different than some of the people you talk to that we understand that we need more people and we need more economic activity. So whether it's the work that we do outside of agriculture within my area, and we take a very wide view of agriculture. So we look at, I look at agriculture, bioscience, biofuels, 
food and natural resources, which you can encapsulate quite a bit within that, you know, aggregated space. Mm -hmm. And we take a three-prong approach to our economic development. And the first is business retention and expansion. As we know, the vast majority of new job creation or economic opportunity is finding ways to help existing businesses that are already here, whether that's, you know, even a cooperative or it's somebody else that's just been in business for 30 years and maybe has hit a roadblock and needs help with marketing or, you know, needs to talk to the county about some issue. Mm-hmm. You know, the second area that we I do a lot of um, time on is business attraction. Mm-hmm. So trying to get new firms, you know, whether it's foreign direct investment or it's domestic investment to come in here into our area and to take notice of our, you know, our affordability of production here, low cost um, location, overhead costs, as well as ease of zoning, planning and zoning in comparison to other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And then the third part is, you know, developing that entrepreneurship, eco- entrepreneurial ecosystem mm-hmm. to try to, you know, let somebody, if they're in, you know, Shota, Montana, where I live, or Shelby, or even someplace like Chester, Montana, to say, okay, you got this great idea. You want to make this, you know, healthy snack bar you know, how is it that we can facilitate you, one, feeling free to come up with that idea, mm-hmm. you know, pushing forward with it, thinking that it could be a dream of yours, and then provide them help and assistance along the way to see them to success. Right. So, Jan, the center in Ronan, is that, it's analogous to yours, right? It's one of yeah, the four. So, it's one of the other four, yeah. Yeah, and so that's one of the things interesting to note is that, um the first about eight or so years of these th- these food and egg development centers, the Great Falls Center wasn't established and it wasn't funded. Mm-hmm. And Great Falls came in just about two years ago with kind of a different take on things. And so for the first few years of the food and egg development centers, the largest focus has been on cottage industries, I would say. Right. And, you know, small-scale producers, small-scale, you know, you know, manufacturing, small-scale, you know, eating local, you know, food to institution type stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing wrong with that. But then when we looked at this north central Montana, that's a huge commodity producer. You know, right. it's, it's it's known worldwide as the Golden Triangle. And you'll, you know, meet people that are buyers, you know, anywhere in the world. And they know, okay, the Golden Triangle is this area of Montana. And this mm-hmm. is what they produce and <laughs> where it comes from, is that we came in and said, okay, we're going to focus still on this small scale stuff that people focused on. But we really, really, really need to bring the companies in here that are going to put a 40 or a $250 million plant in place and employ 40 to 120 people Mm -hmm. so that we can capture, you know, more tax revenue, that we can have higher wages, that we can increase the basis price Mm -hmm. for the commodities. And the second thing on that is because we have been export-oriented, especially when we look at our pulse sector and even our wheat sector for that matter, that because of trade concerns we have currently is we need to really enhance this economic you know, taking advantage of emerging domestic economic demand for some of our crops rather than just putting them on a, you know, a Panamax vessel and sending it overseas. Right, right. So that must be what led you to get involved in the whole um, plant-based eating movement. It is, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so... It's so crazy to to meet somebody who's got this heavy, I mean, you're an ag economist and you understand agriculture big time, and you're interacting with what at least started out as sort of a fringy part of the food, you know, world, which is the vegan people who are kind of crazy about animal anything. So I, you get to talk about that. How did you start getting involved and what are you doing? 
Yeah, so, you know, before I came on board, and that's something I should share, I, my, my background, you know, I grew up in rural Wyoming, and I got a master's degree from what I used to joke when I lived out in D.C. I, people would ask me where I went to school, and I would tell them the Harvard of the West. Mm-hmm. And they would usually reply, oh, you went to Stanford, and that's right. when I would take, you know, another drink of my beer and be right. like, no, the University of Wyoming. And that's mm-hmm. usually when they would either want to talk to me more or just walk away. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, after I got my master's degree at University of Wyoming, I went out to work at, in Washington, D.C. for a little-known government agency called the Foreign Egg Service. And as an agriculture economist and international trade specialist with NFAS, I spent three years helping to negotiate trade agreements, specializing in SPS and TBT concerns, mm-hmm. as well as doing international analysis, and then served overseas as an agriculture attache and even served as an acting senior commercial officer for three years in Central America. And, mm-hmm. um, so I kind of, in this role, have a little bit different background than others that have been involved in, I'd say, economic development rooted in agriculture in Montana, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I grew up in a town of 300 people. I graduated like one out of 14, oh, <laughs> and then I went goodness. on to the University of Wyoming, and then you know, I got to see this wide open things. You know, before I was 30, I had the opportunity to, you know, give advice up to levels of the president's cabinet and up to levels of you know, ministers and one time having breakfast with a president of a foreign country. And it was mm-hmm. things I never imagined. And then, you know, my wife asked to come back to rural America and here we are. And right. I guess telling this story is just that when we, before I joined um, the Food and Egg Development Center, I was involved with, um, spent about a year and a half in Montana, kind of bumming around, was a stay-at-home dad with our child Adlai, and then ended up running an agriculture input company for about three and a half years. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just really kind of scratched my head and asked, is this really what I want to be doing? And I went ahead and took in excess of a $30,000 pay cut to jump into this new role. And it's been amazingly, you know, it's just been amazing to be back in public service and trying to, you know, resolve things like rural poverty, provide economic opportunities, and really, you know, strengthen our agricultural sector. So, when I came into this at the end of August, um, different elements of the state of Montana, especially the Great Falls Development Authority, have been trying to find ways to attract, you know, agricultural processing in relation to our pulse crops. Right. Um, Montana, over the past five years, has become essentially the main producer of, when we look at green and yellow peas, garbanzo beans, and lentils in our country. Um, hmm. And so looking at this stuff and scratching my head, and really analyzing this whole supply chain and everything that's happened, that's when, you know, I started to recognize this alternative protein movement is if we're going to really, you know, increase, take advantage of, you know, evolving domestic demand to get better market opportunities and get companies to locate here, you know, our best opportunity is probably in this sector that, you know, if you're in a cow town, you know, you hear about it on the radio talking about fake meat and all these different things yet people aren't necessarily explaining to people in rural areas that the potential economic benefits of this new emerging protein sector that really isn't going to replace livestock, but it's going to complement it as we see populations increase and world income levels really rise by 2050. And that's where we're finding, I guess, in this unique, that's where I, I guess, was <laughs> a long-winded answer to your question is how I ended up, yeah, you know, no, really I putting can, my foot in this space. Right. And, and it is important that you're bigger you have a bigger perspective because of the early part of your career, right? So you bring yeah. that bigger, broader perspective back to a rural place in Montana and and you look around you and go, oh, yeah, the consumer out there away from Montana is, is interested in some different kinds of 
of food and we could really step up with this. So how have you been involved in in the plant-based so, movement? So beginning, you know, it's interesting when we talk about plant-based because I, I realized as I've gotten involved in this that I was raised as a flexitarian. Uh-huh. So this is, you know, a term that is flown around there that there's vegetarians, there's vegan, vegans, there's, you know, carnivores, there's, you know, all these different things. Right. So the flexitarian is that person that's like, you really don't have a problem with the fact you might two, go two to three days without eating meat. Right. And and so part of mine is, you know, I, I was more open, I guess, to accepting this because I grew up, you know, in a county the size of Connecticut and Rhode Island combined in Wyoming that when I graduated high school, it only had 27,000 people. Right. I mean, it was a true rural area in my, but I grew up with this, the son of, I grew up in a Jewish household that kept semi-kosher, but then my mom was also a vegetarian. So, you know, she would go to the local bean mill over in Powell, Wyoming and later Burlington, Wyoming and buy 50 pound bags of, of lentils or chickpeas or, or black beans, and, you know, you would go two to three days with only eating, you know, vegetable stuff, and then we'd have deer, chicken, or beef on another day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I understand, you know, in seeing this, and I guess when I started looking at this alternative protein space, one of the things that really hit me is that, you know, things, as we know, have changed. And one of the stories I tell is that growing up in, in northwestern Wyoming, and like, you know, I, I, I'm, I should say I'm, I'm 35 years of age going on 36. So when I was like five or six or seven years of age in the late 80s, I remember my mom would make hummus, right? Right. And we'd go to a potluck. Right, with hummus. With hummus in the late 1980s outside of Cody, Wyoming. And right, people, and people would I mean, be like, what is this? Exactly. Now, yeah. the story I tell now, what is it, it's just funny how things change, is that when my mom takes hummus to a potluck, everybody wants to tell her how she's making hummus wrong. Oh, no. She should really get a good recipe. Right. And so it's it's just an interesting, so I've always been aware of this and then watch these things. My, my specialty in agriculture economics is what's called transaction cost and new institutional economics and mm-hmm. really driving into looking at supply chain and consumer behavior. So I've I've been open to seeing how these things are changing, and that's where, you know, coming into this role and having both the the academic background and then this kind of odd professional background leading up to it, that I was like, yeah, we we need to not be afraid of the future. And that's, I was talking Mm -hmm. to somebody from the Montana Farmers Union the other day, and I was like, you got to stop looking behind, and you got to stop looking to the sides and letting people distract you. Right. And you need to look straight forward, and you look, need to look 20 years from now and ask, where is the agriculture industry going, mm-hmm. and how is it that I make sure that I am part of it, mm-hmm. instead of trying to fight against it and trying to relive something that probably is being left behind in a certain sense. Right. It, it's kind of, you know, we're a dairy state here, right? And, and all the alternative milks that people are now drinking, you know, it's yeah. kind of like the the industry looking back here is, well, we got to get a regulatory thing and fight the use of the word milk with all these other nuts and nut milks and stuff. And it's kind of like, yeah, but that's not going to change the consumer. Like the consumer is moving away from dairy for for reasons that are probably health related and just changing the word. Like we're wasting a whole bunch of time if that's what we're going to do. Yeah, we see that definitely, like, you know, milk, that's an issue, and then we also see it. Meat, too, right? Meat is Mm -hmm. coming up, you know, these meat analog products. I mean, you have these two alternative protein that I I kind of bifurcate in two large groups. You have the plant-based, and then on the other side you have what 
cellular agriculture. Some are calling it on the on the you know the vegan side is calling it you know clean meat, while the the NCBA will call it fake meat. Right. And these two sides of the house are producing meat analog products and pushing forward. And the reality is, is much of the anguish, I guess, on cattle producers. And I and I have friends that are cattle producers. My in laws are cattle producers. Is they're concerned about this fake meat appearing. And I mm-hmm. try to explain to them, it's like. One, they're not going to put it in the grocery store in Montana anytime in the next 10 years. Right. You are not their target market. Right. And unless there's a huge aha moment, I mean, I've met these people that have the startups and the leading companies that, you know, are working on cell-based meat. And everybody is saying, unless there's that huge aha moment, we're 10 years away from having anything that would be cost competitive, mm-hmm. even, you know, somewhat cost competitive that you would find it in a Smith's or a a, uh, you know, anybody of Kroger brands or Walmart or something along the lines. Right. And so we're, you know, there's like 20 states, I think, right now that are considering, you know, meat, meat labeling legislation, hmm. um, which is just kind of one of these things that, you know, the federal government's already come out and said, we're going to do this mm-hmm. and we're going to promulgate rules. But all the states, because the, the lobbies are saying, oh, no, no, we have to make sure they're not selling fake meat in our state. Right. And it it's distracting, I think, away from some of the conversations that we can have about economic opportunities to enhance rural areas. Right. So I got to tell this story because it was such a crazy thing. I was flying probably 10 years ago. I was flying from the U.S. to London, and I started talking to the person next to me on the airplane because I'm one of those annoying people who talk to you when you're next to me in an airplane. And this person was coming from Perth, Australia, and going to London um for uh, to be interviewed by the BBC because he ran an he was an artist in Perth Australia which is like the farthest place away from anywhere you can get on the planet and yeah. he has a he had a, a studio an art studio where he was growing cellular meat on um on structures that he as an artist had created and he was he was doing this in he had contracts to do this in places like Harvard um, in research labs who were doing this kind of work. And he said, well, he did this because doing it as art allowed people to have conversations around the ethical issues around what they were doing that couldn't happen otherwise. And I thought, what a crazy thing. And this was like 10 years ago, right? So yeah. it's been going on for a long time. And it, it is... It is, yeah, the cellular stuff is like putting us in, in a place where we do have to have conversations about that, I think. I mean, plant-based yeah. is one thing, but cellular is another, right? It is, and it's been fascinating as I've gotten more involved in the space is realizing that some of this work on cellular agriculture actually began back in the late 1940s. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's something that people have been working on for, for quite a while. It's it's not new. And, right. and that's been, I guess, to answer your question that you asked a little bit ago is, you know, what involvement or how did I get involved? And, you know, I started reaching out to people that were actually influencers that they call themselves now out in San Francisco and others. And, you know, people are always happy to um, talk to somebody from random parts of middle America that say, hey, I want to talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we started having some really good conversations, and then I was asked to become involved with uh, an event that we held in the third week of um, January out in San Francisco called the Alternative Protein Show. Mm-hmm. And then part of that involvement, I mean, we had um, 
it was very it was a very interesting gathering of people. Um, we kind of capped it at around 400 tickets, and we sold out, and we didn't try to make a lot of money off it. But we brought out and you know venture capital from the world over, um, you know heavy of course on San Francisco stuff, but people from you know um, Singapore and other countries, and then we had quite a few startups, but you know big agri giants in our country, both manufacturing mm-hmm. and um, processing companies, were there present as well, mm-hmm. because you know these companies are aware that there's changes afoot, and they want to be kept abreast of them, and. Oh. Right. Yeah. And was it a pitch event or what did you do? Was it a conference? What was it? Yeah, so it was kind of one of these um, relaxed San Francisco style conferences. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. I actually, you know, I was fine wearing my flannel shirt and my sneakers. I actually blended in. I never uh, realized course. that I dressed like a venture capitalist in San Francisco. Yeah, you do. Um, it's sort of the hipster yeah. VC guy, right? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Yeah, so, um, no, we spent a day. It was mainly just one day long and we had... Um, individuals that gave 30-minute deep dive um, or talks. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we separated out, a lot of these, as you've probably been to, you go to some of these agri-tech conferences or agriculture conferences, and the the people speaking are the same people that sponsored it. So, you know, they cut a $15,000 check. Right, so they get to talk, right. Yeah, so Olivia Fox Cobain, who really was the spearhead of this alternative protein show and now what we're doing called Kinder Tech Events that are following up over the next couple of years, was saying, no, 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 you know, this is not a pay-to-play. We want to bring in, you know, leading thought um, or thought leaders as well as academics, um, startups, innovative people to really talk. Mm. And if you donate, you know, you're a sponsor that does not ensure you get a talk because that does not necessarily demonstrate that you're actually innovative, which was, you know, kind of rubbed people the wrong way. But so we had deep dives throughout the day. I actually gave a a 30-minute deep dive talk about, the reasons why alternative protein companies should really consider locating rural America and mm. why they should really focus on north central Montana. And it was it was fascinating some of the people that were, you know, in that in my talk. There was, you know, even somebody, you know, from Harvard came and talked to me afterwards, Fordham University, and then a few of the agri giants were like, Hey, let's keep talking about this subject because mm-hmm. we haven't really thought about, you know, really talking about this before. Right. And so we had that going on. And then we had, um, you know, some booths of sponsors and other people that wanted to do. And what ended up happening is you just had, you know, a lot of startups that showed up and they would be talking back and forth, you know, with some venture capital uh, capitalists. And so it wasn't really a pitch event, but there were pitches happening all the time on the margins of it, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Right, right. Which are actually quite, it's probably more productive, right, from a money-raising perspective for those companies. and yeah. And it is sort of... I mean, it feels kind of like the wild, wild west, right? We kind of don't know how to get our arms around this whole alternative protein thing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, like, it, it is interesting in the fact that, you know, that some of this stuff has been going on forever. Mm-hmm. You know, as you probably, I remember growing up, um, I remember ADM would have the commercials. I mean, this was early 90s, late 80s in Wyoming. We had, like, four channels that the county beamed out from right. a translator. And there would be the ADM commercials talking about soy protein. Right, right. right. TVP. So, yep. Textured so vegetable been, protein that was just awful. Exactly. My mom is a vegetarian. Right. Got from the local hippie store in Cody, Wyoming. Yeah, of course she did. Yes. These bags of it. And I, I have Suffered not through so it. fond memories. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, 
So th- this stuff has been around for, you know, quite a while, and there's been some innovation that has been done. So, you know, you've got the big agri-giants that are doing stuff. And what I find interesting right now is that I'm not sure whether or not it's a bubble. I wouldn't necessarily use that term, but it's a lot of money being thrown into it that are looking at initially the meat analog products. So right. this is, you know, people like Beyond Burger, Impossible Foods, Corn, mm-hmm. and others that are want to mimic the taste and touch of meat, and the same thing is happening with dairy products. Right. And then you have others that are just coming up with innovative plant-based food items. But either way, you see, you know, venture capital that is being actually backed by some old industrial families Mm. that are coming in at seed stage and they want to then sell it, you know, get into that Series A, Series B. Right. You know, people like General Mills, Tyson, and others to really say, okay, we're creating a long-term partnership. And because, you know, that's one of the things is that they're looking to disrupt the space, but at the same time, they want to partner with, you know, existing food distribution to understand that if we want to scale this up, if we can get someone like Tyson or somebody else or Cargill to take, you know, take control of this stuff in the end, that's where they're going to push it out to the entirety of their, you know, their distribution network and it's sure. going to happen quicker. Sure. And and with things like, I, you know, with your pulses, um, one could imagine a trajectory that could be pretty fast, right? I mean, it, this yeah. isn't like beef where or or animal agriculture where you have to go through the life cycle of the animal. So, you know, the, a, a brand like Nyman Ranch Meats, it took a long time to grow that alternative, you know, husbandry brand because yeah. they, it, it was constrained by that. And, and Pulse is not so much, right? You could see this growing a lot faster. Yeah, no, I see it growing quite a bit faster. You know, we have that, as I mentioned, that 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 year of 2050 in mind. Yeah. You know, when I was, you know, something I know we've talked about is that as an agriculture economist, I went to a very beef-centric university. Right. Um, you know, and I had one of these guys, the L.J. Mankaus, brilliant agriculture economist. You know, he would spend time calculating out the inelasticities of demand for beef. Mm-hmm. And But he's the person that drew the Ingalls curve on the chalkboard and said, you know, as consumers you know, increase their income. They move from plant proteins up to poultry because it's a three-to-one conversion, mm-hmm. up to pork, five-to-one, and finally beef, seven-to-one. And he's like, by 2050, we're going to have 12.8 billion people, and this is then create a mess. You know, and I had different other professors, sociologists, professors, and other egg economists that all talked about, you know, resource demand because of food supply. So because of the fact we're on this trajectory, that's where I think that, you know, we are going to see rather rapid growth. Uh, or rapid mm-hmm. growth for these alternative proteins is because we're seeing, you know, advanced protein demand growing as we approach 2050, and these will definitely be able to fill the gap. Right. And th- that's, you know, the exciting thing for me um, when we're looking at Montana on alternative protein basis, it's either the pulse crops or, you know, we can always process our wheat to produce more vital wheat gluten mm-hmm. um, and different things that are available that, you know, we need to do this. But then when I put my agriculture economist hat on, and I started looking at this supply chain that's that's going, that we have all this venture capital and private equity money that's being thrown into alternative protein sector. I mean, it's huge, right? There's hundreds right. of millions of dollars going into some of these companies. But then it, you, you follow this, you know, this, this pebble back all the way to the beginning of the supply chain, and you don't see anything going to, let's say, pulse breeding, right? Right. So, you know, if you read over the, the IPO filings of Beyond... Um, with the Beyond Burger, when you look at Beyond Meat's IPO, they reference in multiple places that some of the risks of buying their stock 
is the fact that there is not necessarily enough of the pea protein demand that meets their, or pea protein supply that meets mm-hmm. their quality standards available in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they have just one relationship, you know, primarily with Roquette and they're bringing stuff in from France or Canada or China that, you know, things aren't going. And But then you look at all the money that is going into some of these consumer-facing companies, and then you look back at the end and it's like, okay, so why is it that we don't have money going to, let's say, Montana State University's plant breeders to figure out how we can increase protein levels of green and yellow peas? Right. So and, uh, this yeah. there there is this enormous disconnect between what like what the consumer what they want in food, right, and the whole supply chain from agriculture that is needed to support the new the new kinds of food, right? And this is happening all the time. It happens with, I mean, we've all experienced it with organics, right? People wanted more organics and the prices were too high and because they couldn't bring people on and it, that's still going on, right? But now it's in the plant base and it's, it's, um, it's across the board. And there's this Real reluctance, I find, working with VC firms and private equity people who work in in the branded food space, they don't want to hear about all that agriculture stuff, right? I mean, they'll they'll ask the questions because they want to know about the risks, but they do not want to get involved. And I think that's... That's a shame because I know from my experience with Tara's Way that the whole value of the company was was around the supply chain. Like that's what made us defensively unique. Anybody could do a brand away protein. And I, when I talk to peop, the people who own the brand now, they say the same thing. It's because of supply chain stuff that they're going to be the one brand that's left on the shelf at Whole Foods after they got rid of all the other ones. So I think... I think that um, getting we've got a project to get people, VCs and private equity people and investor people to understand um, that it isn't just this inconvenient thing. It's it's actually an investment opportunity. Yeah, it's it's huge, and that's so one of the things that I decided to do um, within my roles. I put again my agriculture economist hat on. I looked at this, and you know, it's just microeconomic theory that. If you have this asymmetric information in the marketplace, you're going to have a market failure. Mm-hmm. And and so one of the things we're pushing forward is what we're calling a P3 tour, the Plant Proteins Possibility Tour, and inviting people oh, out fun. to Montana June 17th to 20th and really going to these VCs and private equity people and these startups as well as existing companies and saying, hey, come out to Montana for four days. We are going to, you know, you're going to see the ins and outs of the limits on this, on the production side, talk to plant breeders, you know, visit, Mm -hmm. you know, existing processing facilities. But you're going to have a lot of window time with people and the great microbrews in the evening. And it's really everybody connect and talk saying, if we're going to feed all these people that you think you're going to feed, then we need to unite the supply chain and we have to drive innovation and investment throughout it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're going to fall flat when you recognize that you've done all this stuff, but you didn't start where you needed to at the very beginning. Right, right. And what a progressive thing for you to be doing up there in north central Montana. Like bringing those people out is a non-trivial exercise, right? Just to get them yeah. to come out is a non-trivial exercise, right? Or like, because yeah. you you too, I, ca- I say that we're in flyover territory, but you are too. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's... You know, one of the things that, you know, I think that one of the exciting things about the alternative protein industry is that when I talked to people when I was out in San Francisco in January saying that 
in in some ways it is this division between the coast and the flyover country, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get these certain actors within the alternative protein sector that try to demonize agriculture and say farmers and ranchers are ruining the environment. And I try to point out, it's like, hey, wait, consumers are the ones driving the bus. Mm -hmm. Agriculture is simply responding to consumer demand to produce a highly efficient, high quality and, you know, safe food product at a very low price. It's like, this is not the fault of farmers and ranchers. And, you know, at that point, we start getting a conversation, and then I point out, you know, to them that really, if alternative protein companies want to not have an antagonistic relationship with farmers and ranchers and others that can lobby for bills to block marketing, is that you need to put your companies in rural places like north central Montana, because I think that some people, and correct me if, you know, if you found something different, but I think some people on the coast have this mythical belief about rural America and think that everybody's out there as a farmer and a rancher. And I try to explain to people, it's like in Montana, you know, maybe about 15% of the population is directly involved in agriculture. Otherwise, you have 85% of people that are out there in rural Montana that says, hey, give me a job. I would love to have an economic opportunity. And this is an opportunity to say, hey, we're going back to middle America and we're driving, helping to drive, you know, economic and community development to bring back communities that have been left behind. And I think mm-hmm. that if anything, you know, people have thought about over the past two years when we talk about our divisions, talk of division in our country has become almost commonplace. And I think it's very much felt and understood in rural America where many people lack an ability to see a pathway to prosperity, that this is an opportunity within the alternative protein space that we can start bridging some of the economic divisions we have in our country if we can get this VCMP money that's usually, you know, banked on the, on the coast and get it brought back into rural America and drive some economic change. Right. Well, and it, and it, I think it starts with getting these companies to understand the strategic significance. Like, cause if you, if you're doing like basic, you know, I don't know, your brand of, of food that you've been doing forever. You've yep. been just buying ingredients on commodity markets, right? It didn't matter. Yep. Corn was corn is corn. And right. So this whole idea that you have to care about your supply chain and invest in the supply chain and and that owning a supply chain can be a strategically significant thing is not something brands even think about. And And if they start thinking about that, Hell yes, why wouldn't you? You know, why wouldn't you come to Montana, right? It would make so yeah. much sense to do that. Yeah, you know, one ownership of that supply chain, but also, you know, one thing I talked to some of my marketing friends is there's an incredible brand story for people to tell, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I told somebody the other day, I was like, if you go ahead and you put another plant in Iowa, I mean, Iowa's rural as well, but, you know, their, their linkage effects they've built on agriculture, you know, Montana is nowhere close to that, right? Right. I was like, if you go to some of these areas that are already prosperous in agriculture, I was like, you're just somebody else. I was like, if you come to North Central Montana, where are you? Are a huge deal. Yeah, right. Like, you're the only deal. Like, <laughs> you yeah. are the only people, and I and I point out, it's like you are like huge, and the fact is, you're in a state that only has one million people, and a state that has two U.S. senators, just like every other state. Mm-hmm. And that was something I pointed out in San Francisco. It's like if you're in California and you're a company or your person, you're just someone when you call a senator's office. Right. And when you're a business person and you're providing jobs in a place like Montana, you are somebody when you call that senator's office. And that is something that some of these new emerging brands can really take advantage of. Mm -hmm. I would say in some of the sparsely populated rural states is 
you can get the low cost of production, you can get some political backing for the things that you're doing, and you also can tell a story, you know, as part of your brand saying, we went to this traditionally, you know, livestock and crop producing region, and we provided quality jobs for people. Mm -hmm. And we supported the agriculture industry, we brought up basis price, we are not antagonistic to rural America we are actually reinvigorating rural America mm-hmm. with this change in the food supply. Right. So um, so it's remarkable to me. So I, I also feel like um, part of the rural America thing is getting, getting young people to go back, right, or maybe go back or go there for the first time, right, that, that younger people tend to be the more, you know, we're more innovative when we're young. Um, it's a generalization, but it's probably pretty true and um, more willing to do things differently. And, um, and you're a tremendous example of that. I mean, for Montana is super lucky to have you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. yeah. No, seriously. And you look around you, um, you know, and as I travel around the country, I get to meet people like you who are either there for the first time or, or they move back later in life. And and they're trying to make a difference in rural communities. And I think that message, that story needs to be told on the coast as well, right? Because there's this like, yep. oh, it's just hopeless and out there in flyover territory, right? Yeah. And I think that that no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I can think of, count on my hands, other people I know that I grew up with or that I've, you know, become acquainted with here in Montana, down where I grew up in Wyoming and other states that have come back. And, you know, it's interesting for me because I don't, I, I'm honest about this. I'm not 100% sure I would have come back as mm-hmm. quickly as I did had my wife not been like, no. We're going <laughs> you know, back, we're, yeah. We're going back. Mm-hmm. I probably would have, you know, been a foreign service officer, a diplomat for a few more tours and then probably came back. But I am, you know, I went through some time being like, it's mentally difficult to come back to a place that doesn't have much economic opportunity. And it's like, oh, geez, this is what... I went to college to get away with, with this right. is why I went to D.C., but now coming back, I'm like, you know, there are, I don't know, I was thinking about this the other day, and this may be a little bit too esoteric, but, you know, I have these two young kids, and I remember of all the amazing things that were part of my rural life and my rural upbringing, right. and there is a sense of hard work, I guess to say, that comes with it. You know, mm-hmm. I had this professor in college that I got to know pretty well, and he was a rural sociologist, and he used to talk about how after he got done with his Ph.D., he went back to Casper, Wyoming. And there really wasn't any need for a guy with a doctorate in sociology right. you know, 40 years ago in Casper, Wyoming. And I was like, what did you do? He's like, I started a fence painting company. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that idea that you figure out what to do to provide things for your family as well as to be active in your community. And I think that that, that work ethic, and that's one of the things when I mentioned about our three-prong of economic development, mm-hmm. that third one being entrepreneurial ecosystem, is I think that there's, there's such a potential in rural America to untap or to tap into what is, has been untapped of this, this potential to unleash rural entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. which is not just limited to food and, food and agriculture and beverages, but all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I think that if you grow up in a rural area like I did, I used to tell people this, I knew that there was more to the world than my town of Matitsi, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Like, it was obvious. Now, I think of a cousin of mine that grew up in Jersey City outside of New York and another one in Los Angeles. Like, their whole world was right there. Right. 
you know, but it was it's very clear to someone in a rural area that, you know, everything's not here. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that can drive people into the process of in or drive people through the process of innovation far um, better, I guess, than you could say in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's kind of like if I don't start my fence company, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do here, right? So there's yep. there are companies born of desperation in a in a sense, but that's not that's not a pejorative thing, right? I yeah, yeah, I I um. I I agree with that. And I think one of the things that you do because of your background is bring this ability to connect your rural your part of the golden triangle of Montana with with the broader world of where the consumer is at because that yep. that is the hard thing for rural entrepreneurs. I see them you know, developing things that would be uh, would be appealing to uh, consumer products anyway, right? Solving problems that and be appealing to their neighbors, and then people on the coast are behaving really differently, right? So they have yeah. to get connected with where the markets are somehow. Exactly, and that's you know, it's it's been lucky, and that's that's kind of the cool thing about the fact that I did leave rural America. I got a you know a master's in agriculture economics. I worked in D.C. and overseas. It, it gave me a Rolodex of interesting people, mm-hmm. and I use that interesting in a good way. Yeah. But it it has helped me to bridge that gap because I can you know put on a suit and be somewhere in San Francisco or D.C. and you know have a conversation with somebody, and then I can you know be in my jeans and t-shirt mm-hmm. out here and have a conversation. And I see that you know a lot of my wife and I have had this conversation that it's similar. What I get to do right now as this food and egg development center director in Montana is very similar to the work that I did as a foreign service officer or as a diplomat mm-hmm. is that I'm really acting as a diplomat on behalf or emissary on behalf of this chunk of Montana that I, that I'm working in. And my job is to connect people and to, you know, just, yeah, bring some opportunity both ways for folks. And, and it's, it's exciting because I think there is, an immense amount of change that is coming in agriculture. Mm. And we want to make sure that we're there, but also to ensure that, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is I've seen a lot of folks, you know, whether you're certain Ivy League schools or others and venture capital saying, agriculture is broken and we are going to fix it. Oh, right. Without recognizing that there so are. So I had, I had yeah. a, 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 something like that happens with, um, with folks on the East Coast from a school that will not be named. Um, but, but, oh, no, we know better. Our MBA students know better. We're going to come and we're going to hold these meetings and we're going to solve your problems. And I, I was like, how dare you talk to me like that? Like, yeah. seriously. Because uh, we're we've been here. There, it's not like there's nothing going on here. You know, it's it's there is an arrogance that um, that folks from the coast come come at us with that. I think I don't know. It's it's very unproductive. Yeah, and that's you know one of my hopes is trying to like put that flag up there and saying you think you're going to change agriculture and food production. Well, there's a lot of us that have been involved in this. For a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And and we know how to change it, and we've been working on changes for a while. So if you want to be part of this, why don't you sit down and talk with us? Mm -hmm. And let's come up with a way to work together. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. I fear that, you know, we're just in the markets. It's just not going to work, I guess to say, um, you know. 
Yeah. Well, it's sort of um, survival of the fittest capitalism, right? So we're going to develop these brands that are going to re- we need we need really high quality pea protein supply, and we're we don't want to care about that, and so we're just going to you know develop the brand and start the sales. And it's like you said, then someday they're going to start not having the protein quality they need to have their functionality in their food, and then what do you do, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And instead of having a conversation with people in rural America, could actually help. You know, I I was in a um, in an event in a in a town. I call it boot camp for a town um, that I was doing in Fairfield, Iowa. And there's some large, really large farmers there. You know, the board board members for Farm Bureau and in Iowa, those could be you know I don't know these two thousand acres a large grain farm for Montana it may not be, but. For us in the Midwest, that's a big farm, right? And and those farmers were saying to to more entrepreneurial, you know, goofy little brand people in the in the who are also part of the group, they're like, you know, if you came to us with something that had a value proposition that we could make more money at that than we could do at, you know, raising corn, we would do it in a heartbeat. But, you know, you come and tell us, well, grow broccoli, right? But do you have any idea how much broccoli 2,000 acres is? You know, it's like, you know, we could probably feed the whole country. So, yeah, yeah, there's so much opportunity to if we would just get – people from agriculture having conversations with people in the food world. Yeah, and, and I also think, and this is interesting your opinion on it, is coming from a consumer behavior side that has just fascinated me since undergrad, is that when I look at food products, we know they can be bifurcated usually on processed con- content attributes on one side, the things we can touch, taste, and feel. And on the other side are these credence attributes that you know just make you feel good. You can't mm-hmm. touch, taste, and feel. And those things that that credence attributes, as people become more affluent, incomes increase, education increases, they start valuing those credence attributes more, you know, humanely processed Mm -hmm. or sustainable, organic, natural, you know, ancient grains. And the vast majority of those credence attributes are ones that only agricultural producers can provide. Right. And I've been talking about this since grad school when I try to work on these projects to demonstrate to ranchers in Wyoming that if we have this national animal identification system, it would be great, not only for epizootic reasons, but because then we could trace a cow or steer all the way to the table, and that allowed Mm -hmm. the consumer to connect with the producer. And we went nowhere with that. We couldn't get the Wyoming Beef Council or the state, anybody to fund it now about 15 years ago, but now people are starting to wake up to that, and it's What I'm really hopeful is finding ways to allow, you know, more of that consumer expenditure that is being spent or that willingness to pay to pay for those credence attributes is find a way that we can draw that through the supply chain back to producers. Right. Rather than having that captured by retailers, especially. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, it starts with getting people in these companies to understand the opportunity of a supply chain. It's not just something to be taken for granted. Yeah. I, have you been involved in that? I, I read about this, I, I want to, I don't know, six months ago that it was this this hot investment opportunity for a company in Wyoming that was going to use blockchain to, to trace. Yeah. Did you hear about this? And I was yeah, like, no, okay, no. so how are they going to actually get that through a slaughter facility? I just yeah, don't so understand. The, the funny thing about that is I, I remember I watched a YouTube video based upon that. Uh-huh. And 
after my wife, I was like, I am so annoyed. And she was like, why? And I showed her the video. And she's like, you were talking about that in grad school. That was the project you wanted to do. I was like, I know. So that was this whole thing is that back in 2005, myself and another and a professor, we looked at doing this whole traceability, as I was mentioning sure. about Animal ID. And blockchain is just, you know, these hyperledger technologies are diversified ledgers, you know, they're just a different way of doing record-keeping on traceability. I get it. And so that's where I was like, oh, man, like I tried to get people to understand the potential of this 15 years ago, and now some of the people that said I didn't know what I was talking to are out there in my home state of Wyoming saying that this is the future of beef production. And I was right. like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just find it interesting that somehow it's actually blockchain that made it sexy right now because it's, yep. like, it's like a technology in search, in search of an application, right? But, well, and plus but, I think – oh, sorry, go on. Well, and then it just – it just doesn't, it runs head on into a commodity agriculture system where you, in a, in a large scale slaughter facility, they can't keep track of it down to a stake. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just impossible the way the whole physical world is set up. So yeah, this idea of making, of applying a soft, it's like a software app to me, right? Oh, the app is going to yep. solve everything, but actually it runs head on into a world that's not set up to support it. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the things I think we've seen. And I think we're on the tail end of it mainly because, you know, the ICOs, the, what the initial coin offerings have kind mm-hmm. of faded. But, you know, everybody was attaching blockchain to like, every food and agriculture item saying that it was the new great thing. And, you know, I'm hoping, you know, that we're moving out of that. You know, traceability is important both for, you know, food traceability for health, animal health, um, plant health, as well as human health outbreaks, but Mm -hmm. also for, you know, providing information to consumers and, you know, financial transfers. But I think it was overhyped a bit with all these people saying we're going to revolutionize and change food production because it's horrible and we're going to come and fix it. Right. It it was another one of these. It felt like another one of these smart people on the on the coast coming looking down on agriculture and saying we know better and we're going to fix it. And it, yeah. without them understanding how the infrastructure would even work, I mean, it just yeah. And yeah, there and, are, and there are customer. I mean, there are consumers care a lot about traceability. I mean, they are. Uh, traceability may not be the right word. I think transparency is a better word. Like yep. they really actually do want to know where their food came from. And that is a new thing, fairly new. The degree to which people are are focused on that is a new thing. And it, it is one of those attributes that you were talking about, right? The yep. intangible attributes. And the other one I would add to that is a brand. I mean, having a brand that makes it simple for people, like don't make me think about all of the transparent steps along the way. I just know Nyman Ranch does this humane practices thing, and I just look for Nyman Ranch, right? Exactly. So the brand yeah. is is so important to simplify all that for people. Yeah, and it's, you know, specifically on traceability, it's interesting. I remember uh, I had this steak lunch with a guy in Guatemala now about eight years ago, and we were talking about this concept of traceability and transparency. And he had, he had previously worked for Dole, mm-hmm. and... He was like, oh, we've been on top of that. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, five years ago, we introduced Dole Earth. Hmm. And I was like, what is that? And so at that time, but they had launched it for the European market, was you could pick up any bunch of banana when you bought it like at a Carrefour or a Tesco, 
And you go to a website, put in your code, and you could see the farm it came from. Wow. And you could see even videos. You could learn about, you know, the- audits of human resource stuff. Um, and that's some of the things that we're seeing now in the United States, this emphasis on transparency. I remember when I was doing research in grad school that, you know, Europe was 10 years ahead of us yeah. on some of this stuff. And now we're you know, starting to live and breathe it in the United States as well. Right, right. No, Europe has definitely been ahead of us. So another thing that you and I talked about that I wanted to talk about that is related yeah. to this plant thing was um, was the researchers that you had, were interacting with around plants who were talking about how they suspect, I guess is the right word at this point, but they're doing research on how plants are adapting to higher CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's something that I, you know, it's been interesting for me. I had never really had dietary issues. And, you know, as we talked about, when I served overseas, I got some really bad um, stomach infections. And I followed the State Department protocol, or they helped me follow it to try to solve this stuff. And it's mm-hmm. essentially you take a nuclear warhead to your stomach and right. then you, you know, try to make yourself better. And I've just never gotten better. So I have this wonderful semi-keto FODMAP um, semi-kosher diet that I follow. Oh, which my is God. A, yeah, you know. I was like, I, you you have the most restrictive diet I have ever seen somebody. Like, yeah, and yeah. So anyway, that, that yeah. yeah, makes you attuned to these things. Yeah, and so then it started, you know, I used to joke when I first came back to the country, I came back September 11, 2013, and everybody was talking about, you know, gluten intolerancy. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own company called the Glutenator. It's just going to have <laughs> added gluten for all those that are missing the gluten. And then, you know, so I've <laughs> had all these all these problems. And my wife is like, see, this is why this is called karma. Right, you, you right. It came back, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, delving more into this is some of these food allergies and other things we see that, you know, there's been some interesting research by different professors as well as some, there was a really extensive political article about it almost two years ago about what they're saying is that we're seeing different changes in sugar within much of our crops because CO2 levels are so high. And so, so this whole thing about carbon seed sequestration is, you know, is part of this stuff, but saying that because the atmosphere is actually changing, we're actually seeing the makeup of, you know, cereal grains or even fruits and vegetables changing mm-hmm. because of this. And it's just one of these other layers about climate change, um, that is out there that is is phenomenally interesting to me. But at the same time, because of this, you have companies like Arcadia Bioscience and others that are breeding new, you know, new special wheat, mm-hmm. um, not using genetic modification, but trying to breed them to change the the sugar chains in them mm-hmm. to you know make them more digestible or you know slower mm-hmm. you know digestible digestibility. So right. there's there's a lot of stuff within that I think that's affecting our food supply mm-hmm. that not a lot of people are talking about. And I think that that's part of because and part of me, my putting my agriculture economist hat back on is some of the things we've talked about is that that's not really that interesting to a venture capitalist, right? Right. You know, well, now, it could, we could be if could they be. figured, if they would connect the dots, it could be very yeah. interesting, right? It, I, it, it could be. You yeah. know, it, it kind of opens up, you know, the, there's one way of looking at it. Oh, my God, this is terrifying. I can't, who knows what we can eat anymore. The, but the other side of that is that it creates, I mean, huge opportunities for biosciences, right? I mean, yeah. That we haven't we things that we haven't even really thought of yet. I mean, 
So talk about like, you know, just opportunity coming from disruption, right? Yeah, and that's, you know, when you mentioned bioscience, one of the exciting things that I find about this alternative protein space that we talked a bit about is the fact, you know, I worked, when I was overseas in Guatemala, I worked on biotechnology acceptance and got growers to be supportive of it. And we've really found that in the U.S., we've been trending away from consumer acceptance of biotechnology. Mm -hmm. And in some of these groups, consumer groups that are saying yay to alternative proteins, including cellular meat, Mm -hmm. are the exact people that have been against biotech. And so they're kind of clashing in their head now between stuff, which is opening up, I think, some options moving forward that we can really drive things with technological advancement in the food and egg sector Mm -hmm. and have a bit more consumer acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we... This is such a crazy thing in agriculture right now because I think everybody is willing to admit that that they're experiencing more climate variability, right? So everybody gets that part. And, you know, what was a predictable cycle of water and heat and temperature and wind and all those things now isn't quite so predictable anymore. So we, we agree about that, but then we can't, you know, the word climate change has gotten so politicized, so we can't really think about that, right? Yeah. Or talk or use that term for what is going on. But all of that variability, suddenly we need, like, the biological sciences need to get applied to agriculture to get more, you know, ecologically-based resilience, you know, as opposed to a chemical approach that, that, you know, optimizes for one set of conditions that are not going to repeat anymore, right? So it's it's just like this incredible opportunity for for scientific research in in agriculture. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 super exciting, um, and that's one of the things I think everything from like Mars Corporation they're working on essentially you know inoculating corn that would provide its own nitrogen like legumes. Mm-hmm. You know you have like the Land Institute that has been working for years on the perennialization of grains, mm-hmm. and there's the, all these different actors that you know have deep roots in agriculture that are doing things, and I mm-hmm. think that there is some room for others outside of agriculture to come in and collaborate. And I, and I think, though, that it's interesting on this, some of the advancements we see in agriculture, it's, um, you know, something that is just going to start popping up on its, you know, popping up is, you know, using genetic modification in, in livestock production. Right. And so CRISPR technologies, you know, I, I often ask some people when I talk to them about alternative proteins, I ask them, it's like, how do you think that we have cloned animals in our food supply or progeny of cloned animals? And they say, no. And I'm like, we do. Um, so I asked them what's going to happen in 10 years from now when leading genetic producers, especially in the cattle sector, start using CRISPR technology to genetically modify their cattle, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's where I say 10 years from now, like all these labeling things that are going on when you have meat that is genetically modified using technology on the store shelf next to meat that was grown in a bioreactor what is going to be truly the definition of meat in the next 10 years? Mm-hmm. And these are right. things that I think and then that are be like interesting. The meat that has, you know, from your neighborhood grass-fed co-op yep. person, you know, who it, it, it is going to get really interesting, right? And it'll yeah. be... It'll be interesting to see how how consumers react to it. I I do I think that I think that um, 
what 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 pre- is pressing to me is the most pressing to me is dealing with this climate variability like yeah. you know and how are we going to keep farmers being productive because the world needs them to be productive how are we going to keep that happening right now we're we're like headed into a really vulnerable place right because the technology yep. hasn't happened yet yeah and that's you know Driving back when I talk about the innovation in this alternative protein sector and that example I used about, you know, pea protein supplies not being, you know, necessarily there, is that we know that as the climate even seeing here in Montana, the drought conditions we've had over the past few years and increased heat mm-hmm. and then, you know, decrease in precipitation, you can't grow pulse crops that mm-hmm. well when things are hot and dry. And so, you know, we see more production moving north. I mean, I think they're breaking ground and trying to grow corn north of Edmonton in Canada now. Wow. And that's, you know, Khrushchev just lived, you know, 70 years too early when he tried to plant, you know, corn in, in Russia and Kazakhstan. Right, right. <laughs> his, his vision was just a little bit too ahead of his time. But, mm-hmm. no, I think for me when I, you know, I look into the eyes of my children and everything, I, I do have this, you know, sitting on my shoulders of asking myself, like, what world will my children inherit? Mm-hmm. And and I do have concern that we aren't directing more resources really to trying to figure out how are we going to feed this 10 billion people by 2050 with an increased level of incomes, but also with less arable land, less potable water, and global climatic change or whatever mm-hmm. people want to call it. Is right. I, I think that is, I think right now, and I think it's in business as well as even just everyday life, it seems that people, I don't know, this is my putting, yeah, just my pure American, you know, citizen hat on. It just, it seems that people are, are too, too focused right now on divisions and too focused on trying to blame others. And that's what, you know, the people that try to divide us, their ideologies are, the politics of blame, rather than saying, you know what, we have a problem that we're facing as all as humanity. Mm-hmm. How is it that we can actually work together to do this, to have a new agricultural revolution, like what I would like to call is the common agricultural revolution mm-hmm. that addresses these issues that we have looking towards 2050. Right, right. Yeah, and I am super glad that because um, you're you're a younger person than I am, right? And I'm so glad that you are thinking about stuff like this because you're going to be around to, um, to forward things longer than I am. Um, yeah, because we need we need young people and we need old people. We need everybody, right, to be yep. engaged with this. So we've covered an incredible range of stuff. Have I missed anything? Have we missed anything? I don't know. Hopefully, it wasn't. <laughs> hopefully, the conversation was okay. No, yeah. I think it's fantastic. I'm. I'm. You know, I. I think it's super valuable to be able to talk like this about agriculture with people who understand agriculture. And um, I'm sure it's going to be great for our listeners um, to listen to. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. The one thing I should mention that, you know, I was, I'm thankful to um, 560 KMON, which is a powerhouse AM station here in Montana that covers 23 counties which is a larger than many East Coast states. And right, then, right. Um, 23 counties is a big 20, deal up there. 20, yep, 23 counties and extends up into the prairie provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, and they're a, a very important voice into rural Montana. They were um, nice enough to let me come in here to, to record this today. Oh, cool, yeah. 
Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for being resourceful and finding that because cell coverage, we could have a whole nother conversation about about that topic, right? (laughs) I keep telling people, I think I'm going to be dead before we have universal cell coverage in this country. And it's not, I'm not that old, right, actually. So I'm like, oh, God, (laughs) this could take forever. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.